To make sure millions of people are getting paid on time and in compliance, ADP is staying on top of each new piece of legislation. So when it comes down to it, ADP isn't just a payroll and HR company. We're the company that helps you navigate complexity. Learn more at ADP.com. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. It's hard to describe my guest today because he does so many things. In fact, helping people do many things is one of the things that he does. Tim Ferriss is an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur, an investor, and a productivity guru, which is how he's managed to host a podcast that has had over 200 million downloads and to write four number one best-selling books, which include The 4-Hour Workweek and Tools of Titans, and his newest, out just last month, is Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. Tim, welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. I was a guest on your podcast recently, and I must tell you that I have a feeling that everybody in the world listens to your podcast. <laughs> Because wherever I went, I was hearing from people ranging from CEOs of multinational companies to my doorman saying, oh, I just heard you on Tim Ferriss' podcast, and actually quoting something I said or something you said. So congratulations. That's quite an amazing reach at a time when almost everything we do tends to have a niche audience. So how did you do it? Well, first, it's so lovely to see you again. And thank you for having me on. Uh, you also made the interview very, 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 very easy, which is which is a huge uh, benefit and greases the wheels for people listening to the podcast. And part of the beauty of audio and podcasts is that it, if we're looking at it from a really high level, it can be a secondary activity. And unlike, say, video or reading text, even in, for instance, the case of my books, I've written five books now, they've, they've done fortunately very well. But when people come up to me on the street, they talk about the podcast. And I think that's because no matter how busy they are, they might have to cook, clean, walk the dog, exercise, do something where they can listen to conversation like this as a secondary activity. So I think that's part of the reason why podcasts in general have exploded. And I think we're still really, really early. The second point I would make is that the podcast started out as a lark, as a side project, because I was burned out. I was burned out after The Four Hour Chef. It was a very difficult book. It was done in partnership with Amazon. And there was a lot of blowback to the launch of Amazon Publishing because there's fear among publishers that a distributor, in effect, would now be competing directly with them in content creation. So the book was boycotted by everyone. So Barnes and Noble, tons of indies, and the big box stores, Target, Costco, et cetera, everybody boycotted it. And it was a really painful, exhausting experience. So I vowed to myself that I would take a long break from books. And what I'd noticed during my launch of The 4-Hour Chef is that the interviews or the media I enjoyed the most were conversations like this. This was 2012, and I'd been interviewed by Joe Rogan, Mark Maron, 
and Chris Hardwick of Nerdist, for instance, and I could be myself. We could get into details. If I let a curse word slip, that's fine. From Long Island, it happens. And they also had a tremendous impact. Their reach was just so impressive to me, even in 2012, that I asked myself, after some input also from people like Scott Adams, creator of Dilbert, what projects could I pick that would really provide the opportunity to learn a lot of new skills and develop new relationships, even if they fail from the outside looking in? Because The 4-Hour Chef had uh, turned out very well as a book, hugely proud of it, but the distribution had really just killed the potential for getting it into the hands of millions of people at the time. And I thought, well, through that process, I learned a little bit about photography. I learned a lot about cooking and accelerated learning. But what could I do that would allow me to maximize for skills and relationships, even if I quit six months in? And podcasting was the answer. I said, you know, no matter what I do, no matter what any of us do, we ask questions. A lot of our thinking in our own heads is just asking questions and answering those questions. So whether I'm doing research for a book 10 years from now or talking to someone at a dinner, for instance, or meeting someone in an elevator, doesn't really matter. Maybe I could get much better at choosing and crafting questions. I could probably get rid of a number of really annoying verbal tics that I'm probably not even aware of. And if you want to have a really painful experience, anybody <laughs> listening to this, just sit down with someone you know, friend, interview them, record it, and then listen to the recording. Because you will find that you say, um, or ah, or so, or pretty, or you know, there's going to be something. Or you smack your lips. That was something that I did a lot. <laughs> I was smacking my lips like a platypus or something. I don't know why I was doing it. And over time, though, uh, and I committed to doing six episodes because I wanted to have a critical mass for learning. And I loved it. I just fell in love with it. I didn't think about business model, didn't think about monetization, didn't think about marketing really at all, just focused on the first six episodes. And what's so nice still about podcasting, and I, I don't think this is going to change anytime soon, is good content travels. Mm -hmm. It just does. And it's surprising to me because text, for instance, can be copy and pasted so easily with audio, it's a lot harder. Yet, nonetheless, I think that because we're so hardwired, if you go back millennia, probably even further, to sitting around a fire, to oral tradition, we are just, I think, programmed to share stories. So, for instance, if you look at my top 25 most popular episodes of all time, and you do just a little bit of basic analysis to correct for things like uh, recency effect where of course the podcast is getting bigger so the most popular episode right. in the first 50 is going to be much much smaller even if it was a huge breakout hit than an average episode now but when you correct for that in the top i want to say 10 episodes roughly half feature guests who who none of the listeners knew that's amazing unknown names and yet it traveled uh, but but i will say that now that I'm on a roll after having had a bunch of green tea, uh, <laughs> that I think part of the reason the podcast has done well, and this is this might sound really woo-woo and silly, 
It's that I really genuinely love doing it. I would be doing something like that and having these conversations anyway because I love doing it. And if you come into anything, say podcasting or using a new social media tool and you're doing it out of obligation or guilt or fear of missing out, you're going to have a really hard time competing against someone who mm-hmm. also happens to love doing it. You're not going to have the endurance. You're not going to have the resilience to compete against someone like that. In the last few years for me, I've really tried to ask the question, and this is new for me, as, as you know, uh, you and I both have a history of smashing through walls and taking pain and maybe taking a lot of pride in taking a lot of pain and so on and so forth. But the question what might this look like if it were easy? Mm. What might this look like if it were easy is a question that I revisit constantly when, for instance, I wake up in the morning and I journal very regularly in the morning. If I feel anxious or overwhelmed in some sense, that question is my life raft in a way. And in many cases, it's just choosing the things that you're really excited about because it greases the wheels for everything else. So those are a few thoughts. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it, uh, such as keeping it as simple as possible. I think many people try to launch a podcast and they say, you know, I really like This American Life. I think I'm going to try to out This American Life, <laughs> This American Life. There's a reason the credits are five minutes long at the end. It's really, 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 really hard to do. So in the beginning, choose a format that had minimal editing, that required minimal technical expertise, so that I could make it to at least six episodes. So keeping it simple was another key decision, I think. I love that. And I also love the idea of what would this be like if it were easy. My terminology is moving from struggle to grace. Yes. And it's been like my path, Mm -hmm. and I'm definitely a work in progress. Uh, But it's just amazing when suddenly you find the joy in what you're doing. Yes, no, definitely. And, and uh, grace, grace is a great word. The word that I think of a lot now also is elegance, mm-hmm. which is very similar. So fewer moving pieces. If you're creating, say, an interior design or architecture, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Gothic cathedral. Maybe you want to look for more of a sort of Scandinavian Japanese aesthetic with very few moving pieces, metaphorically speaking. And you see what you look for. If you're looking for complexity, high barrier to entry, uh, something that requires 80 hours a week because you feel you might have a competitive advantage, and there may be a place for that, but that's what I did as my default. That was Mm -hmm. the tool that I used. And people can do an experiment. So for instance, I'll I'll keep it short, but look around wherever you are and try to note everything that has the color red, whether it's light dark, burgundy, whatever it might be. So you can pause and just take a few seconds to do that. All right, so now you're back. Congratulations. What was the color brown? You're not going to be able to remember, most likely, because you weren't looking for it. And similarly, if you do say, in my case, a short gratitude list, one to three things, typically three in my case, that you're grateful for when I sit down for my morning tea, you're putting a lens on for the rest of the day so that you're selectively seeing the positive. And you can do that, like you said, with grace or elegance by training your eye to see it. But if you are a recovering type A workaholic, like I am, then 
it's something you need to train yourself to develop. And in fact, the way you sort of experiment with yourself and your habits was captured by Newsweek that called you the world's best guinea pig. <laughs> and I didn't know if you liked the title, but somehow you've adopted the description. Um, so what does it mean to you? I quite like it. I think it's, I think it's amusing uh, being a human <laughs> guinea pig. There, there are a few sides to that. The first is, I've always been drawn to the people in the arena, the practitioners, and have had uh, a slight or extreme allergic response to armchair quarterbacks and people who like to speculate and theorize from the safety of fill-in-the-blank for walls. I, I really try to learn from people who have done whatever it is that they are trying to teach or to explore whatever it is they have experienced. So for me, I don't want to teach anything I have not tested myself. I don't want to claim that something works if I haven't seen it with firsthand experience. So to, to that extent, human guinea pig, 100% accurate. But I'm also the experimenter who is working with the guinea pig and finding the experts. So I don't view myself so much as an expert, but I am very good at finding the best in the world of various things. Uh, so, so I'm a collector in that sense. And if I look back, I'm not the first person to do this at all. Uh, but for instance, if one were to look back at George Plimpton, who would, would immerse himself and attempt to become a professional football player for a week or a boxer for a number of rounds with a professional, which I don't recommend by the way, and then write about the experience or AJ Jacobs, for instance, at Esquire, who also, uh, goes through many, many different experiments on himself or Seth Roberts, the late great, uh, Seth Roberts, PhD at Berkeley. I think what makes my approach a little bit different is that I have a predisposition to really obsess over and focus on the details of the prescription. So someone says, well, I wake up early, I have coffee, and then I do this, and I say, great, let's hit pause. What time do you wake up? Do you use an alarm clock? If so, what type of alarm clock? Oh, that's interesting. It's not sound. It's a Philips wake light alarm clock or something along those lines that uses light instead. Well, that's an important detail. And then you have coffee. How do you make your coffee? Oh, you only use this specific brand of coffee. Why is that? Oh, it's because I found that the lighter roasts have more caffeine, which is true, for instance, and so on and so forth. The, the elegance and the actionability is in those details. You need the stories as the connective tissue that can hold together the medicine and the prescriptions. But the details is, is kind of where I live. The details are what bring everything to life. It's just kind of amazing, both in the podcast and in the books. Mm. And so of all the different practices that um, you've talked to people about, that you've experimented with, are there a few that have stuck with you over your life and that you consider sort of the, your golden rules? The first morning mindfulness or meditative practice of some type and in, in, in Tribe Mentors, for instance, I would say 85 to 90% of the people interviewed across every discipline imaginable who are in other respects as different as two humans could possibly be, all have some type of typically 10 to 20 minute mindfulness practice before they ingest any type of information or receive any input. And that's an important detail. 
right? So for instance, I'm, I turn my phone onto airplane mode and it stays on airplane mode until I get up the next morning and go through about 60 minutes of my morning routine. And only then after meditation and journaling, do I turn it on. So I would, for instance, perhaps recommend a couple of entry points for that. One, if people really want to just go whole hog, and some people do, they just want to say, you know what, I'm going to go from zero to one, let's do it. I have I have park and six gear, that's great. You could <laughs> consider uh, a transcendental meditation introduction, which which typically lasts a lunch hour effectively for three or four days, which I found very, very helpful. Uh, also because there is a cost involved, and that sunk cost uh, ensured that I did my homework, <laughs> which was the, the second meditation session each day. Uh, in addition to that, there are certainly apps out there like Headspace, which I find very, very, very helpful. And there are many different options or guided meditations. Uh, I, I happen to like Sam Harris and Tara Brock as two examples. But uh, for those people who are repelled a bit by the word meditation or mindfulness, as I was for decades, the way you could think of the 20 minutes that I spend in the morning is going in the same way that you would think of going to the gym and doing a certain set of exercises to prepare you for a sport so that you don't get injured. So think of it as prehab for the day. And what I mean by that is in many types of this practice, you are observing your feelings and your thoughts and recognizing that there are small gaps in between these passing thoughts and feelings in which you can select a response. And this is training for the rest of the day so that you warm up emotional non-reactivity. In other words, rather than sitting inside the washing machine with all of your various <laughs> thoughts and neuroses, which we all have, you're able to, to pull back the camera just six inches so you're right outside of the glass and looking into the washing machine. This is a very big difference. Then, later in the day, if you're having a conversation with someone who commonly triggers you and makes you upset, or you are in line at Starbucks and it looks like you're going to be five minutes late for your next call, whatever it might be, someone cuts you off in traffic, you are more competent in being response-able, choosing your response. And this has been so helpful for me in A not drowning in cortisol all day, B, feeling less rushed, which is, I would say, my definition of luxury. Just feeling unrushed, nice. very simple. And C, let's just say you lose your edge 10%, but it's the edge that always cuts you. Mm. And you you are doing fewer things, so... In absolute terms, you're doing less, but you're actually twice as good at picking the important things. Net-net, that's a huge improvement of wherever you used to be. So very long description, but I wanted to invest a little bit of time in explaining that because I was so averse to meditating for so long because I met people who meditated and I would say to myself, I have nothing in common with these people. It's like, you know, I, great. I love the didgeridoo. I love yoga, but these people seem unemployed. They're not on the front lines. They've never negotiated a deal in their lives. I have nothing in common with them. So this is not a tool for me. And in the last certainly 10 years, I've met 
people in special operations. I've met retired generals. I've met some of the most effective CEOs on the planet. And at some point or another, they realize that either this type of practice can make them better at almost everything they do and or that they just need it to survive. This is an oxygen mask that they need to continue the pace and the intensity that they enjoy. It's so interesting because the reason why our media platform at Thrive is deliberately about collecting these people in the arena, the practitioners who who have found new ways, less emotionally reactive and cortisol drowning, I love that, ways to succeed, is precisely because we all need these new role models. Because we have this idea that meditating means chilling under a mango tree for the rest of your life, and that's (laughs) fine. That's just not what I want to do. Right. And, you know, the way you described that showed to me very clearly that you are really a born teacher. It's not enough for you to to say what you do. You want to give people entry points to yeah. get there. And that's kind yeah. of a natural impulse for you. It is because I've had I've had the luck. I've had some terrible teachers, I've had some really abusive teachers, but I've also had the handful of teachers who completely changed my concept of what was possible in the world and what was possible for me. And that was sometimes done through epiphanies, so they, which seemed like magic tricks, where they would show me something I consider extremely difficult. They would show me how simple it could be. It gave me so much joy and excitement that when, for instance, I learned to swim when I'm in my 30s, which was a huge lifelong source of embarrassment and insecurity, especially as a kid who grew up on Long Island. But I had a number of near-drowning experiences when I was young, and was terrified of the water and then uh, had a well a mentor who indirectly is Terry Lachlan who is in Tribe of Mentors and actually very sadly passed away a few weeks ago unexpectedly we could we could talk certainly talk about that but I picked up his book Total Immersion and within 10 days this is with a book I went from not being able to swim one proper full lap in a pool 10 days by myself training like 45 minutes a day to doing 40 laps per workout for relaxation with no stress, no strain. And that type of experience is so life affirming and incredible to me because you can then take that as I did. I then wrote a blog post about it and I said, all right, well, here's the book. Here are the seven things that helped me the most. Maybe there's the possibility that someone could print out this blog post, take it to a public pool with some supervision, obviously, and maybe they could learn to swim in one afternoon. Mm. And that's exactly what ended up happening. (laughs) So if I can learn something, and just because of the way my brain works and the way that I've trained myself to look at things, I can say, wait a minute. Now, everyone's claiming this is a skill that takes a lifetime to learn, like languages. You hear this all the time. And I thought I was terrible at languages, in high school, in certainly elementary school, then in high school, and had one or two teachers completely change my life and how I viewed languages. And now I very firmly believe that I can show someone how to become uh, what you would consider, let's say, conversationally skilled in a new language so they can hold a five-minute conversation. Not about economics. They yeah. shouldn't expect to speak about something they can't speak about in English, if that's their <laughs> native language. Uh, but like 12 weeks. 
like 12 weeks as an adult, I think you can actually accomplish that. And if I can show someone that, that door and what's behind it, and they've told themselves for their entire lives, I'm just bad at languages. I can't swim. I'm just not built for swimming, which is what I told myself, whatever it might be. Then suddenly they start to look at other areas in their lives and ask, where else am I accepting partial completeness? And where else have I given up? What are other areas that I think are unchangeable? And the vast majority of these realities that we live with are totally negotiable. Totally negotiable. Uh, And that is what makes me so excited. So I think teaching is then the vehicle. I always thought, because I had a few teachers who really steered me as a teenager in important ways. Uh, And and to set the context, I grew up on Eastern Long Island, and uh, a lot of my friends have died of drug overdoses. A lot of them are alcoholics or drug addicts. Now my best friend died of opiate-related complications. And I very easily can see an alternate world where I traveled down that same path. I, I can very easily see that. And there were a few mentors, coaches, and teachers who steered me in a really important direction around ninth grade. So I always thought this is starting 25 years ago. I mean, really before I'd even graduated from high school, I remember thinking to myself at some point, I want to go back and teach kids around that age because it's such a critical window And it just turned out that my form of teaching or the type of teaching that found me, who knows, is the podcast, the books. It's just a different vehicle, but with the same intention behind it. We are now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. Today's sleep tip is to keep a journal on your nightstand and before bed, Write down a list of what you are grateful for. It's a great way to focus your mind on the good things in your life, big and small, rather than on the running list of unresolved problems that seem to take center stage once our head hits the pillow. And recent studies have shown that this type of gratitude exercise will help you reduce stress and sleep better. And that's one more thing to be grateful for. And stay tuned for my quick chat with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research at Sleep Number, at the end of this interview. One of the other things that we share is sort of our love of the Stoics. Yes. And um, you said that when you discovered Stoicism, it happened through a quote from Seneca. Mm-hmm. And it was the time when you were working 14 hours a day, you were burning yourself out. So what was the quote? So if if I'm remembering correctly, I have thousands and thousands <laughs> of Seneca quotes in my head. Is it that we suffer more in imagination than in reality? Mm, I love that. That is certainly one of them. And uh, just to tie in Stoicism for those who who aren't familiar, this is one of those words again, Stoic philosophy. Ah, it's like meditation. <laughs> Only conjure, worse. conjures up images of... You know, assistant professors in black turtlenecks smoking pipes and looking at you with disapproval. You know, it, it conjures these these really unpleasant images for me, at least. Maybe it it's also just, conjures up resignation. Yeah, for some reason, exactly, the word exactly. Stoicism. Right. Yeah. So stoicism is not taking life like a cow in the rain. That's not what we're talking about. Stoicism you can think of as an operating system 
for making better decisions and being less emotionally reactive, right? Which, which should sound familiar. And that doesn't mean turning into Spock. It just means turning into less of a crazy person and a version of yourself that may be controlled by emotions as opposed to aware and helped by emotions. And uh, certainly, I mean, some of the best competitors that people who, who people would recognize in the worlds of sports, uh, Bill Belichick, if you look at the Seahawks, the Patriots, NFL, I mean, the highest ranks of these sports, players, managers, coaches alike, read Stoicism. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Seneca, Stoicism. I mean, the, the founders of this country uh, also used Stoicism as a, a playbook, essentially. So, it's, so Seneca also ties in, because I only gave one example of, of routines and habits that have stuck with me. I'll give you one that is directly from Stoicism. And I'll even get nerdier and say, I'm pretty sure it is letter 13 on festivals and fasting, which Seneca wrote to one of his students or protégés named Lucilius. And by the way, people listening... Uh, if you search you know, letters of Seneca or moral letters and Seneca, it's all available public domain since it was, I think the copyrights expired about 2000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And in that letter, Seneca says something along the following lines. Every month set aside a certain number of days during which you will eat the cheapest of food, wear the roughest of dress and ask yourself all the while, is this the condition I so feared? Okay. Now, there's more context to it, but why is this important? And I'm going to give you a modern example. I have a friend who, for, say, a week every quarter, so he's not doing it every month. I, I do this, some version of this every month. He camps out in his living room. So he sleeps in a sleeping bag, drinks really, really cheap instant coffee in the morning, and has oatmeal for his meals three times a day. So his entire week, let's just call it costs $15. And what this allows him to do is inoculate himself against the fear of certain types of loss so that he is less prone to the the fear of missing out, the FOMO, the guilt of doing things out of obligation because he in his subconscious or conscious mind is so afraid of what might happen if the deal falls through if he doesn't get the next book deal, if for whatever reason he gets hit with a lawsuit and loses the nice big house, that, or not so big house, just cozy house that he has become accustomed to. And being driven by fear, I think, seldom leads to the paths and destinations in life that we would most find redeeming and fulfilling. But here's the point that I want to underscore and I'll use another quote since I like quotes. One of my favorites is from Archilochus, which, yes, you guessed it, not a recent name, really old. And it's roughly, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be good at negotiating, don't read a book and then go into the biggest negotiation of your life. Practice. Go to a state fair. Put in your repetitions. Go to the gym before you're out on the field. Similarly, if you want to make better decisions for you and your loved ones in a position or a situation where most people would respond with fear and defense, you have to train yourself. So the way that I train myself every month uh, and certainly every quarter is I do different periods of fasting 
I will wear the same, say, white or black T-shirt and one pair of jeans for a week. Uh, and that is directly from stoicism. And eat extremely cheap food. Say, eat canned lentils for a week. And you realize, far from being a huge burden and making your life difficult, in some ways, it's so simplifying that you get to the end of the week and you're like, you know, I don't really feel like eating lentils for the rest of my life, three meals a day. But, my God, that opened up so much bandwidth. Not thinking about where to go out, not thinking about what to wear to go out, not caring about someone noticing my jeans being the same for seven days, which, by the way, they won't because they're too busy thinking about their own stuff. And on and on and on and on. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful practice and has been hugely valuable for me. Uh, and one other practice from Stoicism, which is, in fact, a habit, uh, and uh, you can observe right now through audio, it's a little difficult unless you have some magic or supernatural powers that we're unaware of. Uh, but I am wearing right now on my face a pretty funny-looking assortment of facial hair, and I've I've never done this before. Uh, if you want, if you look up Ming the Merciless and uh, take a look at images, it looks something like that. <laughs> and uh, the, as far as my commenters on the internet are concerned, this has created a civil war, uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of dissent in the ranks, and uh, the audience is split. But fair to say, about seventy percent are just repulsed by this thing on my face and want me to take it off uh, <laughs> to varying degrees. But it's 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 very it's a very strong response. And I very deliberately put this on my face during a week in which I would be doing media nonetheless to train myself to be ashamed of only the things that are worth being ashamed of. And this is directly borrowed from a Stoic named Cato. And Cato was considered by many, including Seneca, to be the perfect Stoic. Now, none of us are perfect, but apparently Cato came pretty close. And he was an idol of George Washington, for instance, to the extent that George Washington had a play related to Cato performed at Valley Forge when the troops were just at the lowest of the low points to spur them on to certainly uh, some of the most decisive fighting in what then became the United States. Right. I mean, this is this is a big deal. So that was his pep talk, basically. And what Cato would do is he would wear a a miscolored tunic. Uh-oh. He would wear a tunic of an unfashionable color and walk around barefoot, effectively around senators and so on, where this was not common, to elicit ridicule deliberately so that what? He could condition himself to be more immune to it so that by training himself to not care about criticism on the things that didn't matter, he would then prepare himself to make unpopular decisions and tell people the important but difficult things when it did matter. It's interesting because I'm, I've also been fascinated by fear, and my approach has been different. I wrote a book called On Becoming Fearless, which was more about not letting your fear stop you. Not that you could ever become entirely fearless, but do you mm. let your fears determine your decisions or not? Oh, definitely. Mm. And for me, the key is actually the first Seneca quote about how we suffer more in imagination because I call it don't lose in your own fantasies. So often <laughs> we just lose in our own fantasies, right? We, we yeah. look ahead and the future is grim in yeah. our heads. And 
I love the Montaigne quote, you know, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, again, the approach to the things that can stop us yeah. from living a full life. And mm-hmm. part of what I love about the way you've taught so many of us is the fact that you've been willing to be vulnerable and to open up about your own journey including your mental health problems, your suicidal thoughts, and uh, the way, despite all that, you've moved on. Where are you on this journey now? I'm suicidal right now. No, it's not true. It's not true. (laughs) That's a joke. I'm trying to inject some levity because we're about to go heavy, folks. Uh, I'm in a really good place. And uh, the the, the reference you made to the, the... coming close to the precipice related to suicide was specifically during a particularly dark period in college, which I think is very common for people. And unfortunately, some of my closest friends, both in high school and in college, ended up killing themselves. And I'm in a good place, A, because I have gathered and tested for myself better toolkits, better routines, which in some sense safeguard against the onset, but also decrease the duration. And manic depression (laughs) is is a predisposition in my family from a scale of 1 to 10 as an 11. It's very, very acute, which I was actually in a sense relieved to see in a full genome analysis that I did recently. They're like, yeah, there isn't really much that we need to talk about except for a few things. One was predisposition to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. The other was extremely, I mean, 100 points out of 100 genetic predisposition to manic depression. And there's certain, and when I say tools, I'm using that in a very literal sense. So for instance, number of habits and routines that I found to be very helpful here. Uh, Number one is when in doubt, and I say when in doubt because I've for my entire life been a night owl. But if I start to see the symptoms of perhaps an onset, right, and you get better at spotting those symptoms if you learn to look for them, which could be uh, physical lethargy, so just feeling very tired physically, wanting to sleep in, even though I seem to be getting the right amount of sleep, uh, going to bed earlier, say before 11 p.m. is or by 11 p.m., is very helpful for prevention. In my case, and there, there's no one-size-fits-all. Another tool is cold exposure. And this I have seen work for thousands and now probably hundreds of thousands of people because I first talked about it in The 4-Hour Body, which I wrote in 2009. Cold exposure meaning, for instance, taking a hot shower in the morning, as I did this morning, and then finishing with 30 or 60 seconds of cold. And cold exposure has been studied, and you can look at literature and uh, sort of clinical uh, meta-analysis and so on related to this, ha- can be used and has been used for treatment of depression. I'm not saying it should be a monotherapy. I'm not saying stop any medication or use it by itself. But as an adjunct, as one piece of the puzzle, I find cold exposure extremely helpful. So I typically do during any shower, partial cold or entirely cold. (laughs) Uh, And there are certain breathing practices that can help with this. Like (laughs) if if people are interested, you can look at something called Wim Hof breathing, which you should never practice before going underwater in 
any circumstance, but it can be really helpful for helping you to contend with cold. And uh, then there are other nutritional interventions, for instance, uh, and one that I've noticed and discovered somewhat accidentally, in fact. Well, one was not accidental, and that was low-dose lithium. So I'm not talking about the 1,200, 1,500 milligrams that you might be prescribed of lithium carbonate, say, by a physician, but rather uh, a small amount of lithium, say 5 milligrams, lithium orotate, which mimics higher groundwater levels of lithium that are naturally occurring in certain places. And there's an article, I believe it's from the New York Times, and I'm going to get the headline wrong, but everybody seems to get the headline wrong, so Google will help you find it. Just something like, maybe we all just need a little bit of lithium. And it discussed the apparent inverse correlation between groundwater levels of lithium and bipolar disorder, suicide. Mm -hmm. Homicide. In other words, the higher the lithium levels, the lower the re- reports or diagnoses of these events and conditions. And uh, so, so I began using very low dose lithium before bed, five milligrams compared to 1200, 1500. And it has seemed to just take off like 3% of the edge. But sometimes, right? It's like if you're trying to put a rocket into space, like, Three degrees or 3% can end up being really, really big. Uh, That also combined with something called NAC, which is a supplement available over the counter. Uh, And again, I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the internet. So get proper advice related to any of these things. But NAC I was taking because it's a precursor to glutathione, which is an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. I was using it for athletics. And I noticed over a period of about 10 days, maybe halfway through, that I was just really chill And I wasn't getting angry as often about the things that usually made me angry. And I wasn't tailspinning into weird, self-loathing internal monologues quite as much. And the only change I could identify was this NAC. And I went on to PubMed, which is a fantastic tool if you want to, in a relatively simple way, find studies. And looked up NAC, and it turns out that it does have potential applications to, say, bipolar so, so the tools have been refined over time. And part of the reason that in, say, my TED Talk, which, by the way, it was my first time speaking on the main stage at TED. It was during the opening session, which meant it was being broadcast live to movie theaters everywhere. The TED Talk I gave was a new TED Talk after I scrapped the one I was going to give the week before TED. And the reason I scrapped it and then I talked about the darkness and the suicidal thoughts and so on is because it's relatively easy to find recipes for success and advice related to success, especially at a place like TED. I felt it would be kind of ridiculous for me to get up and lecture Jeff Bezos on how to be successful. So I went the opposite direction and I decided to talk about the, the, the ways in which I've learned to create different safety nets for avoiding self-destruction. Because without that, if for whatever you go off the rails, the recipes for success don't really matter very much. And uh, that is why I've become very open about this in the last few years, because I feel I have a moral obligation. And uh, someone came up to me actually at an event, and what, what really triggered all of this is I had someone come up to me at an event and 
really nice guy. And he asked me to sign. He waited very patiently for everybody else to finish and came over and said, would you sign this for my brother? I said, I'd be happy to sign it for your brother. Uh, what would you like me to tell him? And he kind of went blank and he, he froze, which happens during book signings sometimes. But it was a very particular look. Like, hmm, couldn't quite read it. But I said, I'll tell you what, do you want me to wing it? I have an idea. Like, I have a feeling of what I could put in. I said, sure, that's great. So I did that and I handed it back to him. And spoke to a few of the organizers, and then I walked to the elevator, and he had waited for me. He said, Tim, do you have a second? I really don't want to bother you, but just as you walk out, do you mind if I walk with you? Sure, no problem. And he explained that his brother, his younger brother, had been a huge fan of mine, and a fan of, say, Joe Rogan and other people, and he'd committed suicide. And he wanted to take this signed book and put it in his brother's bedroom, which his parents hadn't had the heart to change since he killed himself. And he said to me, have you ever thought about talking about mental health or suicide? Because I think you could really help or maybe save some people with your platform. And I was just speechless because I had all the reasons in the world to talk about it. But I was worried about terrifying my family, frightening close friends, maybe losing friends, perhaps having business partners with that who would then view me as unstable, so on and so forth. And uh, it was that conversation where I said, you know what? Mm. This is just too important, and I'm being too selfish isn't the right word, fearful. And even if all of those things happen, if I could save one other older brother or older sister or mother or father from losing someone like this guy's younger brother... Well, Jesus Christ, I mean, I, that's an obligation. That's not an optional. And so I spent about a month, at least a month, drafting a blog post about all of this, which is uh, called Some Practical Thoughts on Suicide, if, if anyone wants to read it. Some Practical Thoughts on Suicide, and I think it's the most important thing I've ever written, by far. By far, not even a close second. And it was the scariest thing I've ever hit publish for. And I am so glad I did it. So, and by the way, by the way, whether it's in, say, Tools of Titans or Tribe of Mentors, the, one of the reasons that I always ask people about their failures and dark periods, because it's so important to me to paint a real picture of these people which, if you look at some magazine covers and feature articles and so on, conversely, many people get the impression that all of these high achievers are just superheroes. They don't have the insecurities. They don't have the neuroses. They don't have the dark moments. They don't hit snooze 10 times on certain days when they don't want to get out of bed. It never happens to them. And therefore, say I, as the hypothetical reader, feel uniquely flawed mm -hmm. and I'm just a broken toy and I wish I could do these things, but I can't because my software is bad or I was traumatized as a kid or I was abused. And I don't want people to come to that conclusion because we're all crazy <laughs> <laughs> and people should feel reassured by that. And we all have our own demons and I don't want to speak for everyone, but the vast majority of people in, say, the, certainly the most recent book, openly talk about that and 
I want people to, at the very least, realize, no matter how badly they feel, how much self-loathing they have, how hopeless it might seem, that there are paths out, and no matter where you are in your life, there are thousands of people, millions of people probably, right now in the same instant, fighting the same fight. So just remember that. It's, it's really important. And that's not to say that I'm suggesting I have any magic trick that's going to make it all go away. But there are also certain gifts that often come with some of these experiences, and you can learn to manage it. You can learn to dance with it rather than just get beaten into submission all the time by it. So I have three thoughts at the same time. So <laughs> I was trying to choose which one to come out with first. And so first of all, while nobody can see your facial hair, nobody could also see that you you brought me to tears. That was really beautiful and moving. Thank you. The other thing is that you kind of exemplified what has been my favorite definition of courage by my compatriot Socrates, which is courage is the knowledge of what is not to be feared. I've never heard that quote before. And I love that because oh, as you were saying, so good. it's like you were courageous by deciding to write this blog post about suicidal thoughts. But it's also like it's courage of the knowledge of what is not to be feared. And the third thought is I, I kept thinking of you as a dad. I think you would be kind of an amazing dad. So what, <laughs> do you want to have a, a kid? <sighs> I I feel this is going to this will take us in a whole new direction. This is going to be good. Uh I love teaching and uh I love kids when I love kids. <laughs> and I've spent a lot of time with my friends' kids. Uh short answer is yes. I think that at the very least at some point, I'm sure that millions of years of evolution and biological drive will override anything that might going on <laughs> up here in my prefrontal cortex, which is a relatively new guest at the party as far as humans go. Second, I would say I'm more confident in my ability to be a good father than I am in the legal construct of marriage as we traditionally view it. That's where I'm less confident. It's mostly a question of how to reconcile those two things. So I don't cause a lot of pain for myself, but more important to me, other people. Certainly any child that I would choose to bring into this world. And by the way, I received some really good advice from a friend of mine who has many kids. And I asked him what advice he would give to a brand new father or mother, but this was a bit of a, a dude outing camping trip. So it was, it was a question about being dad specifically. And he said, thought about it for a moment. And he said, there are two things. Number one is teach your kids to be optimistic mm-hmm. because without that it's very difficult to navigate everything else. And that can be a prerequisite. I'm paraphrasing of course, but that can be a prerequisite for then developing the right coping skills and so on. But if you feel hopeless, you're in a, in a very difficult position. So number one is really focus on teaching your kids to be optimistic. And number two, he said, and I thought this was just great. He said, your kids owe you nothing. You chose to bring them into the world. 
they didn't choose to be brought into the world. It is your job to love them, not their job to love you. Period. Remember that. Remind yourself of it. I thought that was excellent, excellent advice. But now, at the same time, I've seen so many wonderful families who've had incredible chapters together go through really painful and destructive divorces, Mm -hmm. even though independently everyone involved is wonderful. Uh, So I haven't, I haven't, I haven't reconciled that for myself. So it's more, your concern is more the relationship with a child's mother rather than the relationship with a child. Yeah. And, you know, if we're, if we're going to get granular about it, because why not? That's a team very special. Yeah, we're being being vulnerable here. So, you know, high five with Socrates on the quote (laughs) you just told me. Let's go for it. Uh, I am not convinced that uh, monogamy is a natural state of affairs Mm -hmm. over decades and I, I've seen a lot of horrible, horrible things happen to families because that is assumed to be completely inflexible, uh, or it's 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 a topic that is can't even be discussed uh, among adults. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not just talking about men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the men certainly are pretty simple animals at the end of the day, but. It's it's really the that and many different related pieces of that that I think are uh, topics I'm exploring at the moment, and I'm having many conversations with people mm-hmm. who seem to have figured out ways to make it all work. And I'm I'm not interested in what is politically correct. I'm not interested in what'll get applause on some TV talk show. I'm interested in what works. Period. And what works for two people, if they're consenting adults and there are no other victims or no victims because they're both agreeing to a certain Mm -hmm. set of rules, I think should be respected. And uh, I've been very curious, surprise, surprise, and spending a lot of time with people who have figured out for themselves different arrangements, some of which are very, very traditional, uh, as we think of it here in the U.S. at least. and. I'm still on my journey, still figuring it out. And I'm sure if you ask me 20 years from now, I'd tell you the same thing in terms of still figuring it out, still a work in progress. But uh, I, I certainly <laughs> at some point, I certainly at some point think I would love to be a dad. Yes. And I would love to be a dedicated, loving partner. But I, I don't know if that fits into the, the Disney-like schema that... A lot of people think of perhaps when they think of marriage. So I don't have a strong view on your facial facial hair, <laughs> but I do have a, a strong view on you being a dad. Okay, all right. And um, however you figure out the partner relationship, I think that's totally compatible. Whatever arrangement you and the partner figure out with being a great dad, and I think you would be a great dad. And I can't wait for the book you write after you're a dad. (laughs) (laughs) It will definitely not be called The 4-Hour Parent. (laughs) There will be a different title. Uh, Um, But let's let's finish off by talking about the new book, which um, I have in front of me. Uh, it looks amazing and huge, like all Tim Ferriss' books. There's a lot of girth. Um, It's called Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. So what led you to write it? And and are you still being mentored? Are there still people that you consider your mentors? 
I'll answer the second part first. Absolutely, 100%. I really feel, and this is not always a, a useful framework, but in, in any given area, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're either getting weaker or you're getting stronger. There's very little stasis. And for that reason, I am constantly thinking of, and this was advice I got when I was in high school, and then I forgot it for a good period of time, which wasn't great. And that is you're the average of the five people you associate with most. Mm -hmm. Physically, emotionally, financially, everything else, you're the average. Uh, And so I think about that a lot with in-person interaction, but I also think about that a lot with the words that I feed to my brain. So I think of Seneca, and then I think of Marcus (laughs) Aurelius. I think of, in, in more recent times, Temple Grandin, who's really fascinating, an animal behavioral specialist, and uh, also known for redesigning many of the slaughterhouses around the world to be more humane. She has autism and has an incredibly unique set of perspectives on so many different facets of life. But in the case of, say, Temple, and I've met her in person, her superpower is not in-person conversation. So I, I, I wouldn't want to subject her to the discomfort of doing a long podcast interview with me. It wouldn't be fun for her, I don't think. But on the keyboard, different story. She's a Jedi. So then I'm able to send the 11 questions that are on my mind, which will lead into answering the first part of your question, and send them to Temple and then get back some of the most thoughtful, incredible answers I've ever seen. And I don't have to be there in person with her because I have her sentiment and I have her insight and I have her wisdom. I have all of that and her life experiences in those words. So she could be one of the five, certainly, that I choose to spend the most time with, say, for the next week or the next month, whatever that is. And what led me to to write the book, really, and this is what leads me to write most of my books, is I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. (laughs) And I had turned 40. I recently turned 40, which didn't cause any type of, you know, Corvette buying panic or anything. Uh, Maybe there'll be a delay onset, but I don't think so. However, around the same time, a number of my close friends died very unexpectedly from both disease and accident. And simultaneously, the, the 10th anniversary of my first book, 4 Hour Work Week, to the day, April 24th, in this case, so 2007 then to 2017, was the exact day that I stepped on stage at TED to talk about my brush with suicide and contending with depression, which was just a weird juxtaposition. It was a really surreal juxtaposition. You know, After millions of copies and being translated into 40-plus languages and all of this that creates a picture of, for some people, Tim having it all figured out and then getting on stage and just punching everyone right in the gut emotionally in the first 30 seconds talking about this was such an odd feeling for me combined with everything else. I decided that I wanted to stay, take a step back and just reassess everything and ask a lot of, a lot of different questions And rather than try to figure it out by myself in isolation in some dark corner of the house, which I've done, been there, done that, (laughs) not terribly helpful in my experience, I asked myself, what might this look like if it were easy? And I wrote down as many ideas as came to mind on two pieces of paper. Most of them were garbage, but there was one 
and it was, why don't I send these questions to a dream list of 130 people who either are my mentors or who I want to be my mentors? And that's how the book came about. And it's an absolutely wonderful book. I, I can't recommend it more highly. An absolutely perfect holiday gift. Thank you, Tim, so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. Now we're going to take a minute to talk with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research at Sleep Number. What are some habits that people should reconsider to make sure they get the best quality sleep? Oh, there are two that come right off the top of my head. One is uh, caffeine. We're way over-caffeinated as a society. Um, in fact, it's caffeine afternoon. Uh, I have two teenage daughters, a rule in our house, afternoon, no caffeine. Caffeine has a half-life of about six to seven hours in the average person, meaning half the caffeine that you consume with that latte at three or that energy drink at four to get you through the rest of the day is with you at bedtime. And we know that caffeine is a major disruptor, especially of that performance, deep sleep. So no caffeine afternoon. And the other one is, I know it's a favorite of yours, is screen time uh, within an hour before going to bed. I don't care if it's a 55-inch TV or a 5-inch smartphone screen. Um, it emits so much blue and white light that it suppresses the production of melatonin, um, which is the hormone that helps us get good deep sleep early in the night. And uh, if, you go, if the last thing you do is turn off your screen... Two things happen. You don't have any melatonin to get going, and your mind doesn't turn off. It yes. just races. And I talk to so many people who have insomnia and they can't fall asleep. It's because of the racing mind. Screens contribute to that. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com thrive. To make sure millions of people are getting paid on time and in compliance, ADP is staying on top of each new piece of legislation. So when it comes down to it, ADP isn't just a payroll and HR company. We're the company that helps you navigate complexity. Learn more at ADP.com. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.